Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of the Hoover Institution's Pacific Century podcast, where my co-hosts Misha Oslin and, and I, John Yu, discuss the latest developments in Pacific and in the Pacific re, Indo-Pacific region we call it nowadays, involving China, uh, Asia more broadly, uh, and the United States and our foreign policy. Uh, so, uh, Misha, welcome. Uh, say hello to the audience. And I hear you've got a reader's letter you want to start with. Hello, audience. Yes, John, I, I do. I, I uh, opened up the mailbag today and I discovered a letter from mom. Uh-oh. Yep. Yes, indeed. Uh, it's a short one, so I'll just read it really quickly to you to kick us off. It says, Dear Misha and John, what the hell happened? Where have you guys been? <laughs> Do you have nothing more to say, or have you finally realized that you have nothing to say? <laughs> Love, Mom. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've been off a, a little while. I have an excuse. Uh, my excuse is that I'm in Washington, D.C., and uh, Washington, D.C. shuts down in the summer, as you know. Nothing's <laughs> happening here. So uh, we've, been, we've been watching and uh, sort of keeping our eyes on what's been happening in, in the Indo-Pacific. But mom's letter spurred me to uh, reach out to you, John, and say, well, we need to talk about the Pacific century once again. And I used to think Korean mothers were tough. Jeez, I'm no. glad that I have your mother as my mother. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think they have a joint union. That's Ouch. My, that's my assumption. <laughs> I always thought that tiger mom stuff, that was for wimps. I mean, that's not even close to real Asian mom or <laughs> Misha's mom. Or real Jewish mom. No, definitely <laughs> Oh, Jewish not. mom. Don't get me started. Of course, hey, don't get me started. So uh, thanks, mom, for the letter. Uh, I'm, this is why I have my mom blocked as a contact on my email. So I can't get letters like that. But let's start with the show. we got a lot to cover. And the first off, I thought I asked uh, Misha to address the latest developments involving the United States, China, the G20 meetings in Japan, and President Trump's historic crossing into North Korea. My take is we've seen a lot of political symbolism like the crossing North Korea, a lot of political activity. But is it a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing? Did anything really change? So Misha, what do you think? Well, you know, John, it's a great question. In some ways, I think it goes to the whole pattern of international institutions in which a, a lot of it, a ton of it is just sound and fury. And it really signifies little in most cases. I mean, these meetings happen all across the globe, not just in the Indo-Pacific, all throughout the year. You have, uh, you know, you have track one leaders meetings, and you got track 1.5 meetings and track two meetings of specialists, and uh, they all go to exotic places and everybody loves them. And, and the question is, does anything actually get solved? Because all we ever talk about are all the problems we face. So, you know, at one point, you can either be a skeptic and say, well, this is just the, the you know, the Davos elite. This is Davos man going on his his various journeys through the uh, the, the, the the jungles of the elite world. Um, or you can say this is actually we've sort of come to this point where the 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 medium is the message, uh, as Marshall McLuhan said about uh, uh, about television, I think, or, or, or popular media, whatever it was that, you know, this is what they do. And if they don't do it, then they feel that process doesn't work. So what came out of this? I mean, the only really concrete thing that came out of the G20 uh, was that. 
China and the United States would start talking again about trade. Um, it wasn't that the two ever said, we're not going to talk again, so you didn't really need a G20 to get back to that point. Um, but they they invested with this symbolism. It's sort of this totemic, pre-modern symbolism of you know two warrior chieftains coming together and then deciding – uh, that they're going to have, you know, mano a mano combat. In this case, they're going to reopen negotiations. Uh, interestingly, Trump, who had um, partly walked away, so to speak, from these from these negotiations because he wasn't getting the types of of deals that he wanted, stated that well, the Chinese. One of the reasons he's going back is the Chinese agreed that they will uh, start buying a lot of uh, of um, agricultural goods from the U.S. right away. And guess what? That hasn't happened. And since then. They've actually added the uh, the agricultural minister, who's considered a, a harder line negotiator than Liu He, who's the uh, the trade negotiator, to negotiations. So, really, uh, there was a ton going on from the Japanese perspective as the hosts. Everyone had their bilats. Um, the big news was that the U.S. and China would talk again, but all they've done so far is have a few phone conversations. Yeah, I. That was my read was that, uh, of course, the stock market really liked it because at least it meant there was no deepening of the trade war, but it just seemed to be the status quo. And so, as you say, just because you have these high-level meetings doesn't actually mean you're going to get progress when there is a deep divide on policy between the two countries. What do you think, though, about uh, what the Trump side was saying in these trade negotiations uh, which was that 90% of the agreement had been done, and then it was the Chinese who kind of torpedoed it by taking back some of the concessions they had made, and that's what caused President Trump to walk away from the negotiations. Do you, do you, do you buy that, or do you think there's it's something deeper, like there's actually a structural uh, structural divide which can't really be negotiated over? Uh, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's – look, when, when you ask to change China's model, you're asking to change China. And there's there's a big debate that we might be able to get to. If not today, I think we'll, we'll talk about it later, this actually very significant – Well, uh, we have to have another show because of mom. I mean mom's – Mom, definitely. We get right? on a faster rhythm here, right? See, I, can't, I can't get more letters like that, so we got to get another show out. Um, but I, I think when we get to that next show – uh, we'll, uh, we should probably talk about this really significant, serious generational, uh, I mean, I mean, once in a generation divide within the China community over what's the path forward. Um, there's, there's a long tradition, uh, from our China engagement policy of saying, we're not going to try to change China inside. We're going to change how it acts outside. Um, and, so that's how we approach these these negotiations. Uh, but what we don't often understand is that from the Chinese perspective, if you're trying to change how they act outside, i.e. structural issues that cause the deficits and the unfair trading, you're actually trying to change the system inside, if that makes sense. You're, you're talking about changing government support for SOEs, state-owned enterprises. You're talking about changing export strategies. You're talking about changing uh, technology gathering strategies. So uh, to your question, I think there is actually a structural divide. Now, the the and we're a few weeks away from this already, but the uh, immediate um, uh, political issue uh, was that, yes, the Trump administration stated that they had this whole set of agreements. And again, I, I think that you have to give them credit for having uh, brought the Chinese this far, but also great skepticism that the Chinese are going to change. But they felt they had all these great agreements, and then the Chinese informed them in, in a letter of some kind that they were actually 
walking back, reneging, changing a lot of their promises. And that's when Trump said, OK, I'm, I'm done um, and, and said, by the way, and now we're going to levy this remaining three hundred and fifty billion dollars of, of tariffs on uh, on Chinese imports. So um, there, there's two speeds going on. There's the, the, the sort of daily policy issues uh, between the negotiators and the principals. And then there's the much deeper, much more fundamental, uh, fundamental structural issues. Um, there's no indication that they have reached any type of agreement on this. Uh, what they have agreed is to continue talking. It, it's a little bit like what we've done with North Korea over and over, which is we don't have an agreement, but we agree to keep talking. So uh, we'll see we'll see where it goes. But um, the the latest news that the agriculture minister uh, has been um, put onto these talks. Um, look, all of them are controlled by Xi Jinping. They're all. Uh, on a fairly um, short leash, if you want to put it that way. But um, to to put a noted hardliner uh, up front uh, may indicate a hardening of the Chinese position. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, before we turn to North Korea, I uh, just wanted to uh, add a few uh, cents in on what you just said. You know, it reminds me of these debates that you have in uh, class and um, about foreign policy or national relations. You know, do you treat countries like billiard balls? Right, and the world is just a billiard table, and we don't really look inside the ball to see why it moves around. We just shape our policy based on the external actions of the country. But that's never really been true. You know, so you think about the great American success in the Cold War, which was right, we contained the Soviet Union. But the reason we contained the Soviet Union is because we had a theory that the Soviets were essentially expansionists because of their internal ideology. But we accept – the interesting thing I think about the Cold War is that we kind of accepted that we couldn't change what was going on inside the billiard ball, the Soviet Union. The best we could do was contain its external movements. And I think, you know, Misha, what I hear you saying is, right, in a way, some people in the American community have always been enamored of the idea that we could change the internal politics of China so that it wouldn't act in certain ways in international affairs. And maybe, you know, what you say reminds me of these debates because it makes me think maybe that that's, you know, what we did with the Soviet Union is what we should do with China. We can't really change what's going to happen inside China. The best we can do is respond and react and have a strategy for what it's going to do externally. And hopefully it will exhaust, this expansionism will exhaust itself or this aggressiveness will, uh, you know, as it did eventually with the Soviet Union, but took, right, 50 years. Yeah, I, I think that um, there is a there is a nuance. I, I think that when we started this process in the in the seventies, the assumption was that eventually we were going to be able to change the inside of China, uh, and and we were going to do that, of course, by bringing them into the world, bringing them into the for, you know the global economic sphere, then the global political sphere, and and so on and so forth, and and ultimately. Uh, you know, and you can read what Bill Clinton said about uh, during the WTO debates that this is going to provide China with direct exposure to the most powerful force known to man, which is democracy, right, and liberalization and liberalism, and of course, a self-interested um, economic middle class will, in in our view of how the world works, uh, demand political freedoms. Uh, China, you know, of course, doesn't see it that way, uh, and the the social um, Pact the social contract that they made, of course, was no political freedom for economic growth. So as the limitations to that strategy uh, actually became clearer, then you had this switch 
later on, and uh, certainly after Tiananmen, but then then again, I think in the um, uh, you skip forward to the WTO, and then after that, as we see changes not happening in China, to say, well, uh, we actually, what we don't want to try to do is change China inside. We just want to try to change how it acts outside, and what where I think that there is a a um, a, a sort of uh, fault line in that is that the two are inseparable um, because it is a Marxist-Leninist controlled system. It it has uh, certain ways of acting out in the world that are derived directly from internally within the system. Its view of the world. Um, the the actions it feels it has to take to protect itself, uh, the way in which it certainly attempts to suborn others towards its worldview, um, and so your comment, John, on on what we need to do in the sense of uh, opposing and and taking a sort of Cold War type approach, and of course people are now calling this Cold War 2.0 uh, and and other things like that, is I think correct, um, but I think we have to do it. Because we understand that that protects our interests, not because we actually think that absent internal change in China, it's going to change abroad, if, if that makes sense. I think, mm-hmm. I think you do it because you're protecting yourself, you're protecting uh, what you hold dear, uh, be it intellectual property or, or uh, human rights or, or democratization or whatever it happens to be. Um, but we're not doing it with the sense that we're actually going to get China to agree that it won't act this way out in the world. It it will respond to those maneuvers on our part, but I think always uh, completely opportunistically and completely tactically. Uh, and instead, what what we have to do, and I think you just pinned it right near the end of your comment, was we have to wait and hope that what this does is eventually wears them down, and 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 then you may get change that's internal. We had no change in the Soviet Union externally until it started changing internally. That's where we have to get with China. Well, speaking of regimes that are very difficult to change, let's talk about North Korea for a second because one of the, again, big symbolic political moments, and you got to give President Trump credit. He really knows how to uh, stage events. I mean, this is a reality TV background coming to the fore was uh, President Trump crossing into North Korea, uh, you know, basically arm in arm with the uh, head of the most repressive dictatorship on the face of the planet. Uh, and again, I wonder whether it's an example where we delude ourselves into thinking we can engineer internal change uh, as a way of trying to address a serious security challenge. So with North Korea – I don't really see any change at all either. So, of course, uh, President Trump and Chairman Kim seem to have this kind of weird bromance going on. Uh, As a result, North Korea seems to have uh, paused in its testing of ballistic missiles. Um, They haven't also – they also haven't uh, tested any underground nuclear uh, warheads, although we can't tell whether actual development and research is and uh, manufacturing is still going on or not. But again, it doesn't seem to me that there's any uh, movement toward a, a solution of the North Korean nuclear problem. And in fact, there were some leaks coming out of Washington, I think designed to undermine uh, your your, fr- your former friend, my former colleague, and your uh, both of our friend and colleague, John Bolton, uh, his position as national security advisor. But there were these leaks coming out of Washington which suggested the Trump administration might 
recognize and acknowledge North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. If that were the fact, I mean, if that was the case, I mean, one thing it seems to me is uh, that might be inevitable in the sense that how are we ever going to get North Korea to give up nuclear weapons? I don't think that they would give them up for anything because they see that as part of their regime survival. On the other hand, you know, we have seen examples where countries have given up nuclear weapons like uh, India, like South Africa, like Libya. Or, I mean, not just nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction. And, you know, people in the United States in the foreign policy community think, well, maybe we can offer North Korea a path, uh, something like what Vietnam or Thailand are moving along from a dictatorship towards a more open economy and maybe open political system. But the pessimist in me thinks that North Korea is playing us, that they're just seeing how much they can get out of us. They're never going to give up nuclear weapons, and maybe they can get us to pay some kind of ransom to not be open and obvious about deploying them and deploying missiles. But I, again, I don't see any reality that's changed despite the great theatrics of crossing the DMZ. Yeah, well, you're you're obviously right. We've never seen anything like it, and I think that in a lot of ways, that's you know where the Trump team feels that what they're doing is is um, is an epical moment, and and they're not they're not wrong. I mean, it's stunning that they were able to put together this visit so quickly um, after the president's tweet uh, that everyone got on board with making sure there wasn't some horrific international incident. The South Koreans, North Koreans, the Americans, um, the president walking you know into North Korea and. Uh, walking apparently a little farther into North Korea than they had originally anticipated and got everyone a little nervous. And then they, uh, you know, everything worked out. Um, but again, it's, it's sort of back to where we were with China, which is uh, they're agreeing to talk. They've agreed to agree to talk. And um, this is something that uh, has been the norm in U.S.-North Korean relations, which is the feeling that we just have to keep talking because otherwise what's the alternative? Now, the Obama administration took it to an extreme in a sense of saying, uh, well, we're, we're going to have this uh, strategic patience. Uh, I think that's what it was called. I, I, f I forget what it was, forget yeah. the actual term now, right? Yeah, strategic, strategic patience. patience. Yeah. yeah which, AKA doing nothing. Right, exactly. AKA <laughs> I think a lot, of my, down the a lot road. of my students who don't do the reading assignments are exercising strategic patience. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually a life strategy. I'm not lazy. I'm actually just strategically patient. It's going to be our new, actually, John, if we get coffee, coffee yeah, made for this podcast, yeah. that's it. We're not lazy. We're strategically patient, but, um, uh, you know, that uh, for them, it, what they did is they simply watched for basically eight years while North Korea perfected its its nuclear testing and, and missiles. So, you know, the Trump administration has, in a sense, gone back to the old model, which is let's keep talking. But of course, what Trump has done is hopscotched all of the layers that we were using for that set of negotiations and brought it up to the very top the very top level, which is him and Kim. Um, you know, it's a gamble. I mean, obviously, look, they had they had no good options. Clearly, the Obama plan didn't work. Uh, you know, there, the, the Bush plan did not get us where we wanted to be. The Clinton plan fell apart. So what was your option? Uh, you know, I, you, you can just it's, you know, in, in diplomacy, where you're trying to get something done, it sounds sort of dumb to say, well, give them credit for trying uh, and trying something new. But really, with North Korea, that that's almost the only place that we were. Now, where do we go from here? 
Um, North Korea went a little bit back to its old tricks. It shot off some short range ballistic missiles, nothing that could be considered a real threat to us uh, or or even really uh, Japan. Um, they there is a lot of chatter, of course, that they are doing work on restarting reactors. Uh, and this is tying in with the broader fear of what Iran is doing so that you're going to have these sort of nuclear balls rolling in the Middle East and, and in East Asia. Um, but for now, you know, once the president has put his imprimatur on it, you have to go with these talks. Um, I think that anyone who's looked at North Korea would probably agree with what you said. Uh, you know, this, it is very hard to believe that we're going to get something out of this, um, that we would not have uh, gotten with with a different type of plan. Um, they've they've sort of seen all of the cards we have, and perhaps from the North Korean perspective, what they have now is the best thing they could ever have, which is um, having a direct pipeline to the president and being able to 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 um, get him invested in in these talks. Um, we'll see. Uh, let's just assume. Let us just assume that the administration is going to be a one-term administration. Um, it, it will it has very little time left to achieve any anything real. So the the question from I think their perspective is, what do you think you can get done in the time that you know you have left? Interesting. Yeah, it's. I mean, suppose Trump doesn't win a second term. What's been the outcome? Maybe. As you say, the nuclear program and the missiles of technology development has uh, not advanced a lot if it's not frozen. And they do have this new uh, pipeline of communication with directly with the president of the United States, which is in some ways politically important. They've got a big upgrade in their prestige in the world. Uh, and before they were this kind of isolated rogue regime, nobody wanted to have anything to do with. They were sort of on a par with like organized crime and drug cartels and you know people outside the legitimate you know world system. And now they're you know tr- President Trump has brought them in, as it were, from the cold. So I don't know. But let let's uh, turn to another big uh, topic that's also lately been in the news, and I, I know you have some. Uh, interesting, uh, important thoughts on this, which are the protests in Hong Kong. You know, we've seen now, uh, as those of you remember, this was triggered by a proposed law that would have given uh, the mainland Chinese government the right to seek the extradition of people from Hong Kong. And this triggered enormous, enormous protests. I think uh, one estimate I read was that more than a million people came out to protest in a country uh, no, a country in a city Hong Kong that doesn't even have 10 million people in it so you have something like I think estimates of 15 maybe even 20 percent of the population are out there protesting and eventually the uh, China the Beijing appointed Hong Kong government leaders uh, decided to stop seeking approval of the bill this extradition bill uh, the protests continued however and there were uh, attacks uh, that led to a kind of occupation of the city legislature, uh, and there have been arrests. Um, now, the city, go- the the governor of the city, uh, has she has said that she's not going. She hasn't promised to withdraw the bill, but she's also said something along the lines of it's not going to be moving forward either. So, Misha, what do you think about the immediate question of? You know this extradition bill. Why was it so important? But then also, what does this portend for the larger question of the place of Hong Kong 
uh, in the uh, in terms of China and American policy there. Yeah, John, this is actually, I think, one of the most important stories that's happened over the the last month and since since we last talked with our with our audience. Um, so this this bill was uh, actually was not instigated by China. It actually came from a case where a a, a man in Hong Kong uh, murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan. Now Hong Kong does not have extradition uh, treaties with with Taiwan, uh, with China, and with a few other um, a few other um, countries. So the bill was brought forward so that uh, they could get this guy back from from Taiwan. Uh, and and have him you know have him uh, uh, charged in in Hong Kong, uh, but in there of course as as you noted was this provision that uh, extradition to the mainland would also be possible. Um, now for obviously pro democracy protesters, uh, for activists, for journalists, editors, and I and I would also say for business people, um, this was perhaps the red line. Now. China has been encroaching on Hong Kong's freedoms uh, for years. Remember, in the 1984 basic agreement between Great Britain and China, uh, Hong Kong would be governed by, differently for 50 years, keeping basically its own system while becoming clearly a part of China and and, and not having its own uh, you know, foreign and defense policy. Um, China has been chipping away at that. Uh, for for years, but particularly over the past ten to fifteen years, with uh, new national security laws, with uh, interfering with the legislature, um, with of course reneging on a on a, uh, a commitment that the chief executive, the highest elected or the highest uh, official in Hong Kong, would ultimately be elected openly by the people. Um, this caused massive uh, protests of, a few years ago. Um, uh, uh, of course, kidnapping uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, hold, uh, Hong Kong citizens or, or, or residents of Hong Kong who held dual passports, uh, those who are critical of Xi Jinping, bringing them to China, these booksellers a few years ago, uh, making mandatory uh, the, the Chinese national anthem and, and respect for the flag. Anyway, the, the point is, is that Hong Kong's international uh, freedoms uh, and, and sort of you can't call them sovereign freedoms, but unique freedoms were in, uh, being impinged upon steadily. But the extradition treaty really was was sort of the last straw. In a sense, if you now knew that there was no legal protection for you from being sent to China, then any fiction that Hong Kong was independent in any way in terms of its own governance from China was washed away. So the protests were massive, and, and a lot of them were building off of the student protests of a few years ago, 2014 and 2015, the umbrella movement protests. Um, but these were not only a million, but but the latest uh, um, protests or demonstrations were two million people, uh, at least claimed by the protesters. They broke into the legislative council. I mean, this they attacked policemen. I mean, this this is the the strongest challenge to Hong Kong's rule since being turned over, returned to China in 1997. The really great challenge here is what does China do? And after the latest uh, protests, which had uh, about two million people, as I mentioned, China indicated that if the Hong Kong authorities and the once highly respected and vaunted independent Hong Kong police could not control the protesters, then China would have to consider intervening, i.e. invading, right? That the PLA 
would be sent into Hong Kong. And you might see something that would make Tiananmen Square look like a minor Sunday dust up. Um, this was the specter that really would have, I think, ripped the mask off of China's um, pretensions to upholding any of the the international agreements that that it has made. You know, this one being maybe at the very top of those. And so Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive, stated not only uh, that she had withdrawn the bill, but most recently stated that it is dead. And for the protesters, that's actually not enough. Um, they have they've argued that if you're dead, you can be revived. What they want her to say is that the bill is withdrawn and she won't say that. And the reason she won't say that is because China wants this bill to go through. So Lam is in a, an impossible position. A lot of people expect that she um, might well have to resign. That is going to open the whole question now of what are you going to do? with um, a new election and people who happen to be, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there just for a second, John. I was thinking about mom's letter again. Um, <laughs> what do you, see, it haunts me. It haunts me. Um, because Beijing has to approve the slate of candidates for, uh, for chief executive to be elected by the legislative council, and that legislative council now has a majority of, China, of pro-China legislators, how can any chief executive be seen as uh, legitimate in the eyes of the Hong Kongers. So this is really probably the most significant thing that's happening today, I would say, in Asia. Uh, it goes potentially to the whole question of how China is going to deal with what it considers renegade provinces, which is includes Hong Kong, it includes Taiwan, it includes Xinjiang, it includes Tibet. And it also goes to China's role on the world stage, having promised certain things, in international agreements, and whether it's going to live up to them or not. Yeah, I think there's two interesting uh, sort of angles to it that uh, caught my eye, just in addition to the massive numbers, was, as you mentioned, one is, uh, does anybody find China making any credible promises after they've started to you know, sort of turn their back on or even violate the original agreements it made with Great Britain. You know, suppose you're China and you actually even want to keep your word in an international agreement over, say, the South China Seas or in trade, right? This is definitely one of the issues in the trade debates, which were trade negotiations we might talk about in a second, is suppose Beijing does make all these promises about intellectual property. Suppose they make all these promises about allowing free competition in their markets. How can anyone believe them? What can China even do to show it's going to keep its promises after they have been violating some of the core principles of the handover on Hong Kong? So that's one uh, sort of one interesting thing. And then the second thing is this kind of the other dynamic that's very interesting you mentioned here I think is also going on, which is the you know don't kill the golden goose uh, phenomenon, which is you know, China – gets a lot of benefit out of Hong Kong. Right? Hong Kong is a major financial center still, is a major economic center, uh, but a lot of that wealth is movable. You know, Hong Kong is not uh, wealthy because it has a lot of natural resources. It's because of human capital, and that human capital can easily move. And a lot of that depends, it seems to me, on the you know, legal guarantees and some amount of political freedom they enjoy, which they don't have on the mainland. And you know, China tries to... Uh, you know, go renege on these promises, and they could see a lot of that intellectual capital, which leads to the wealth that they really need in the future, disappear. So, these are, you know, it's, you wonder whether 
uh, you know, the, uh, this sort of nationalism in the Chinese leadership is, is sort of overcoming their understanding of what's even in China's best interests. It's really interesting. Um, so, Misha, third issue for us to discuss um, is, you know, we talked, touched on it a little bit with the G20, is the uh, restarting, as it were, of trade negotiations. Um, also tied in with that has been uh, President Trump's promise to allow Huawei some greater access to the U.S. Uh, markets and the U.S. economy. Um, do you think that Trump is going to be able to reach a trade deal with China in the next I don't know, next few months or even next year? Or is this all just sort of just kicking the can down the road and maybe both sides want to have some kind of agreement that papers over their differences or just even just a mutual understanding with no agreement until we get past these presidential elections and then the whole thing really gets thrashed out in 2021? Yeah, yeah I think uh, I actually want to get get your take on that since I know you follow the trade uh, pretty quickly, um, uh, pretty carefully. But uh, in in the case of um, Huawei, uh, it's interesting because it's sort of the second time that the administration has announced that it was going to levy, uh, you know, types of sanctions uh, or or some type of of uh, restrictions on a Chinese uh, tech company, and then lifted them. And the other one was ZTE uh, a, a couple of years ago. And uh, I, you know, Trump got a lot of. Uh, criticism of course for for having flip-flopped on on the Huawei issue and yet um, they made clear that they were allowing the sales of items what originally was saying is that Huawei would not be able to buy tech items particularly chips from American makers unless those were approved by uh, the US government that there was a review process and then they said no they can go ahead and buy uh, buy items that they need in, in order to you know make their telecommunications networks and uh, the the administration said that what they've done is they they're allowing Huawei to continue to buy goods that are uh, basically widely available and therefore are are not considered to be um, uh, you know uh, specially uh, unique that that Huawei would be getting trade secrets or getting an unfair advantage but that almost anyone has access. To these, and then secondly, that they were also maintaining the ban on Huawei participating in U.S. 5G networks. So their their whole argument is one that, uh, from their point of view, naturally the nuance of what they were doing was not reported widely. And and in the meantime, they are trying to figure out a way that is going to move forward the broader uh, question of coming to an agreement uh, over trade, which. Xi Jinping, taking actually taking a page out of Trump's book, said, "Well, we're not going forward unless Huawei is uh, is basically cleared uh, for business." And so the Chinese are starting themselves to put counter pressure on the U.S. It's not just Trump who's been putting pressure on. Um, and so it's sort of a half glass full, half glass empty on 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 Huawei. Clearly, both sides want to get get past this, and it doesn't seem that. The administration is going to back down on banning Huawei from U.S. Uh, networks and, and allowing Huawei into a what is a uh, a, um, a belated you know U.S. 5G national plan. Uh, on the other hand, the argument is that Huawei on its own, without buying U.S. chips, really can't function the way that it has around the world. So we're enabling it, and in order to 
cut it down to size, you've got to make sure that you're not giving it access to the top U.S. to the top U.S. chips. Um, this is another one where it's very hard to see, you know, any way forward other than one side pretty much caving in. Whether that's going to be the Chinese saying, "Fine, you know, Huawei is going to try to go it alone," or the U.S. is going to convince itself that no, Huawei can have access to all of these items because they're 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 widely accepted uh, and, and widely available. So. Um, I mean, what do you think? What's your take on this? Yeah, interesting thing. It, again, it goes back to you know what you raised in the beginning of the show was how uh, we do have this kind of Cold War, but not Cold War in the sense we had the Soviet Union because of major differences. While they're security competitors, uh, China's economy is so intertwined with ours. And I know you have a piece up. You should tell us a little bit about it on uh, the Hoover website today talking about how could – China and the U.S. actually decouple if that's what you know, was going to – if that's what the United States, for example, decided it wanted to do. Um, but that makes things difficult. So Huawei is a great example of the conflict there because we generally would like to have uh, open competition uh, both here and in China between our uh, right tech companies. And Huawei, of course, is in the networking space. Um, but when we advantage them in certain – when they win advantage in certain ways – it actually has uh, very important national security implications. And it's not like the Soviet Union where our, our economies were pretty much separated. And we actually had quite a – basically organize a, basically an embargo on the Soviet Union for decades. Here, uh, it's interesting. If we do continue on with this effort to keep Huawei out of the construction of the 5G networks – we are going to be, you know, the United States will put itself economically at a disadvantage because Huawei right now is the dominant supplier of that technology, and everyone else, I think, is about a year, maybe about a year behind. So we'll have, you know, important, you know, heavy economic costs, but it might be worth worth it for national security reasons. You know, so I think about World War One is more, I think, the last time we had this kind of great power conflict or rivalry. At the same time, you had deeply intertwined. Economies, and I wonder, you know, did the British were the British out there selling cannons to the German Navy, you know, in 1912 <laughs> or 1911? That sort of might be the equivalent because nowadays, you know, these technologies, uh, you know, uh, for you know, have not just civilian network capabilities; they're also very useful for cyber war. So, in terms of the tr- the broader trade question that you raised, Misha, you know, I, I I take what you're saying, and it seems to me, you know, as you pointed out, there's some. Uh, things which you could come to agreement on. Maybe they'll buy more agricultural products. Maybe we'll let them buy, you say, commercially available, non-sensitive technology like certain kinds of chips and displays and so on. Um, but you know, things which are you know, have this sort of core national security importance and high high-speed computing, networking, and so on. Maybe in those areas you don't ever really get a trade agreement. And maybe we've been seeking to. We've been asking for too much. This idea that there, that Trump would negotiate some kind of grand bargain with the Chinese that could set the rules for our economic relationship for the next decade. I, I don't think that's possible. If I if I was looking at it from the Chinese perspective, I would say, why should we agree to such a thing? Things are pretty good even now. Um, why not just uh, both sides might just have an interest of reaching some kind of you know, rules of the road or modus, modus vivendi, which are not really formalized in some kind of treaty like the WTO or NAFTA, keep things going along for a few more years and then returning back to it, either if Trump's in his second term 
or if President Xi's economy, uh, Chinese economy is maybe weaker and they need to open up more in order to get more foreign investment and more trade to bolster their economy. But maybe this is one of the cases where you just – the conditions aren't there for some kind of grand bargain. I think you're see. right. I mean I, I, I think you're right and I think that you know what what is concerning is that we've we've sort of come to this point where there is this flood now of uh, fear and and catching up uh, on the challenge and threat that China faces. Um, uh, to us, I mean that, that it poses to us that we face from China, and uh, each of these problems is is not insignificant. Uh, you know, each is significant, um, and each one would would take uh, you know a great deal of of time to work out, to understand fully, to look at alternatives, to to get past headlines where it's just easy to to say this and that, but really understand what what it means. Um, but instead, you've got all of these things happening at once. You've got the overall trade negotiations and and uh, the tariffs and the trade war. You've got Huawei. Uh, you've got the South China Sea issues. You've got Hong Kong. You've got Taiwan. I mean, all of it is is sort of crashing down. And I think it's really straining our ability, uh, given that we are still really don't have that many people who deeply know China, who deeply understand uh, what, what's going on there uh, in, in a sort of holistic sense, the old sense of how we used to do it, really understanding society and culture and, and history and, and, and language and literature and how that all feeds into a system, and, and in this case, a communist system and a Marxist-Leninist system. Uh, we've wanted to see, you know, we've seen what we have wanted to see. Now that that consensus has shattered uh, and you have a great number of people coming over to the China's a threat uh, side of the uh, of the seesaw, it's unbalanced again, and and we're not having the time to sort of slowly absorb. Okay, you know what? We were wrong in this particular area. We need to change course now. Let's understand it. You have five or six massive areas in which that's happening at once, and and it's not making I think for good China policy. And I'm not blaming the administration. What the administration has done is actually. Um, basically uh, acknowledge what everyone knew, which is that the, the former policies weren't working, that we were in a worse place, that China was more aggressive and more assertive and had not um, basically uh, adopted the norms or, or uh, acted in, in uh, constructive and cooperative ways. And so you couldn't keep going down that road. But it's as if you're you know, traveling down the highway at 90 miles an hour and you want to make a, a U-turn basically uh, into oncoming traffic and, and then continue going. It's really hard to do at once. And so there's an enormous stress right now on all the people trying to carry out policy. And I don't want to call it a confusion on the part of people who are suddenly saying, look, we're in, a, in this generational cold war with China, but a lot of people who until recently were saying, oh no, engagement, 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 are now saying, oh my God, the the, the barn is burning. What are you going to do about it? Uh, and we have once again missed the opportunity to have a slow and steady and um, I think informed debate uh, about where to go. And um, and I think that's, that is something that the Chinese themselves uh, can try to take advantage of, even as they are somewhat shocked 
by the belligerents in their view of the Trump administration, even as they're now worried that they're going to lose some of the gains that they've made. Um, they also understand that this country is deeply split and not certain where to go with China or, or how to get where it wants to go with China. And they can take advantage of that. Yeah, Misha, that raises this issue. I know you wanted to uh, get to uh, maybe a little later, but I think this is a good opportunity to talk about now, which is uh, you've mentioned that there is this divide, uh, not just uh, not just on immediate policy issues, but on a sort of deeper way to think about China uh, in the U.S. foreign policy community. I think you told me you call it something like the Great Divide, <laughs> uh, and I, I'm curious what you. Uh, if you could describe that and then how you think these latest developments um, fit into it. So just you know, my uh, initial take on what you've said is that one interesting thing that Trump has done and I think you know is maybe one of the things that will clearly outlive his presidency is this very sharp change on attitudes towards China. You know, you and I have held these kind of more skeptical views about China for a, a long time. Many people did not, and uh, it's – I don't know, it seems stunning to me how quickly um, people on both sides of the partisan political aisle, but also many people in the foreign policy community have shifted to this same sort of skeptical view of China's intentions and what it's doing around the world from what prevailed you know, under the Obama and Bush administrations just uh, two years ago. So what, what is this – what is this uh, divide that you're you, you've been mentioning, and how? Uh, what are the camps? Who's in them? Uh, what are the main differences between the two? Well, it's a. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big topic, and I, and I think in some ways I'd, I almost wish we could do a longer, you know, do a show on it. And and uh, yeah. um, but but you know, to put it briefly, again, it goes back to what I just said that that yeah. uh, with Trump coming into office, he has acted upon a wide sense a widespread sense that our china policy was was flawed if if not failing um and you know for for people you know like democrats were uh, concerned about trade republicans were concerned about security you know those are sort of very broad broad divisions but you've had since the 1970s of course uh an entire china handlers community um you know, we're not allies, so we often talk about that with, you know, mm. alliance management, let's say, with the Japanese. But you had China handlers the way that they had America handlers. Who would, who would be some of the people who are these handlers? Well, you know, there the are day. there are people – I mean, in general, most of the people who wound up holding positions, whether they were mm. known as, uh, you know, political appointees, people like um, Winston Lord or, or people like uh, – or foreign service officers and then later political appointees like Stapleton Roy um, to m- more recent people, Susan Thornton, the uh, former acting assistant secretary of state um, and, uh, for uh, East Asia and the Pacific – um, Daniel Russell, the, the former assistant secretary of state. And, and again, these are both Republican and Democrat or appointed under both Republicans and Democrats. And then a whole host of people that, you know, our listeners really wouldn't know who are in academia, um, who were, uh, you know, committed to the, the concept and the policy of engagement with China. And, um, and, and that's, again, not to say that they were inherently wrong for 40 years. It's not that the policy itself was inherently wrong. I mean, there are some who would argue that. And I think the policy was um, very quick to try to find 
uh, evidence for what it wanted to find, which was that you could make changes in China, uh, you know, through these policies and integrating it into the world. Um, but now that um, uh, you have uh, this new zeitgeist that that the China policy was uh, was failed, and so the China community is beginning to split apart. And, you know, I've, I've talked to people about it. And, and initially, people were saying to me, no, it's, you know, we still all work together. And, you know, we know we've known each other for decades, which is true. And that's, that's somewhat, um, you know, somewhat accurate. But I think what you're seeing is more and more evidence that it's really dividing. Uh, it's really dividing into two camps. Um, last week, Weekend in the Washington Post. I'm sure your your uh, our listeners who uh, follow these things are know what I'm going to talk about. There was a letter signed by about a hundred of what you could call the pro engagement camp uh, of people um, who signed a letter that was written uh, by some of the the bigger names in the field uh, who said that you know there's bad things that are going on in China but right now the basic problem is US policy and we need to go back to the old policy of long-term steady and engagement um uh, the letter writers included Susan Thornton, as I mentioned, who was acting assistant secretary of state for East Asia and the Pacific, Stapleton Roy, who was a former ambassador uh, and one of Henry Kissinger's original people uh, to go uh, over to China. Um, Ian Johnston, who is a professor uh, at Harvard. Um, this is really what you would consider sort of the um, – you know, the mainstream of of the China studies community and that 100 people signing a letter saying that um, uh, we have to go back to the old policy. And, and one of the reasons they were doing this is because there's been a raft of defections, you might say, and new coalitions that have come out talking about the challenges uh, to uh, our China policy and what needs to be done. One of the the most significant ones was actually a report done by our Hoover colleague, Larry Diamond, in uh, in a consultation, not a consultation, but in um, a, a joint effort with the Asia Society and Orville Schell, who's a, a, a longtime China watcher for 40, 50 years and has lived there and written numerous books on China. Um, and Elizabeth Economy, who is a visiting uh, Hoover fellow and uh, a senior fellow over at the Council on Foreign Relations, people who have spent their careers being engaged with China, who have now said we need a, 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 a change of course, that we have to look at what China is doing with its influence operations, uh, with its cyber operations, with all of these different things that are, are actively aggressive and harming. And there are other reports uh, that have come out. John Pomfret, the, the longtime Washington Post correspondent and author of a, uh, a very and outstanding history of U.S.-China relations, actually uh, not only was a, a co-author of the Hoover Report, but he penned an op-ed in the Washington Post a few days after this open letter saying, nope, those folks are wrong. They're calling to go back to a failed policy. Um, there will be another letter coming out with at least 130 signers uh, that's completely opposed to the engagement policy, talking about the, that Trump has it right, that that we have been deceiving ourselves over the true nature of the Communist Party and the nature of the Chinese regime and therefore our ability to both change them and work with them. And we need to maintain this hard line. So there is a there's always been a split 
John, between you know, sort of the the harder liners, what people called the the dragon slayers, and what people called the panda huggers. You know, to put them very crudely, uh, which takes away any nuance from the positions that all these <laughs> people des- had. When you describe them that way. If, who would not want to be the dragon slayer? Who wants to be a panda hugger? <laughs> hey, I'm I'm a lover, not a fighter, man. I want to be a panda hugger. And, <laughs> really? You know, and, and these are these are you know these are very very crude broad categories. But now what you've seen is that a lot of people again, who have been committed for decades to the engagement approach are having second thoughts. And they're not saying, look, go to war with China. They're not saying, you know, shut down all relations with China. What they're saying is, let's look at the facts and at where we thought we would be, where we wanted to be, and where we are today. And so this is really a a massive split. And it, it is a split that is being now played out much more in public. I, I think those who have been part of it have have seen what has gone on privately or quasi-privately, but now it's being played out at very, very public levels. Uh, and it's really, uh, in some ways, it's almost a reprise of the who lost China arguments of the 19, late 1940s yeah, and 1950s. I was just going to mention that. The, yeah. the China hands phrase really comes from the who lost China debate and all these uh, State Department people and people who are scholars and visitors uh, to China before fell to the communists and uh, which is one comment I have is that there always has been this uh, element in American policy to China that's kind of romanticized China and seen, uh, as you said, what we want to see in China. And sometimes the policy reflects a lot more about us than it reflects about the realities in China. I, that's that's exactly right. And there is a deeper story here, and this is probably what we don't have time to get into, and one that I think – is going to be written at some point, thanks to precisely what we've been talking about. But there is there is an argument uh, that you know really the development of China studies in the U.S. was was shifted uh, in the 1960s uh, into a a channel that was it, it, you can't call it necessarily supportive of communist China, but of of engagement and really of trying to um, work. If I, I, it's hard to sort of articulate what it is, but, but essentially work with the system as it was, right? And so you studied it in ways that didn't try to say, well, you know, uh, look, the communists are are uh, are, are an illegitimate, illegal uh, regime and a, and a brutal regime, but rather, okay, what are they doing, right? There's there's a difference in emphasis about how you approach it, and so those who were who were really hardcore on China, people um, that had been uh, you know trained early on were sort of shunted off to the side when this consensus began to take hold within the universities and the policy community. And and it really grew as the debates over normalization with China grew in the late 1960s. Uh, and so you think of, of uh, people like David Rowe, who was a professor at Yale, professor of political science for years, um, people who were, and, and like Rowe, people who were, who were much more pro-Taiwan than they were pro pro-communist China, right? Taiwan, of course, was authoritarian, not a democracy at that point, but they felt Taiwan was a, a much better partner of and for the United States than communist China. And so as these debates began in the late 1960s over uh, normalization of relations with communist China, uh, the hardliners were increasingly shunted off to the margins. And the, the field was dominated by those who uh, argued that you had to deal with communist China, that that, that they were not going to be gone anytime soon, and you had to study what they were doing and how they were doing. But in some ways, and, and certainly in some cases, that fed into 
um, if you want to call it this way, a normalization uh, of of communist China. And the mindset that then translated, I think, in some ways to the policy argument, of course, was everything we've been talking about through this podcast, which is bring China into the world and eventually some of its behaviors are going to change. Uh, now, I think this entire argument is is starting to be rehashed because you're going back to a, the very fundamental question of do you understand correctly the nature of the communist regime and the nature of communist China and what you are able or unable to do about it? Uh, and therefore, I, I think you're going to see people starting to go back and, and unearth some of these older arguments and some of these uh, warnings against getting too close to communist China or being too willing to sort of accept their ground rules for uh, you know, whether you're in a think tank or even in academia, uh, for playing by their rules so that you would have access to China. Uh, that's one of the charges levied against the engagement group is that they never wanted to lose their access to China. And so they were willing to criticize so far and no farther. Um, this will have implications, I think, for policy. It's going to have implications for, for scholarship. Um, but it is very interesting how this has evolved over the past couple of, of, um, of months even. And I, and I don't think it's over. And so I think, uh, we'll probably come back to it and talk about it. And we're going to have people on, and we've had people on this show, uh, who are on either side of this debate. And I think that that's important to get their views and really understand, um, where the American Chinese studies community is going because it's going to affect our entire Indo-Pacific policy. That's interesting. Well, I can't believe it, but we are at the end of our time, or at least for the episode, not in the broader sense. Um, so I think what we are suggesting, though, is our next, uh, maybe for our next episode, we are going to have a few guests or maybe a guest or two that will uh, talk more about this growing divide in our approach to how to think about China. Uh, but uh, until then, uh, I'd like to thank uh, my co-host, Misha, and uh, thank the Hoover Institution for hosting our podcast. And uh, we'll just end it right there. But Misha, why don't you say goodbye on your behalf? And more importantly, on maybe we've uh, at least satisfied your mom's demands, at least for this month. I, I think she's she's happy now, but we got to keep going. So we're going to come back. Uh, we will look forward to talking with our audience and listeners soon. And, and we are going to have some folks who are really top-notch China people to come and talk to us about what's going on. Great. Thanks a lot, Misha. And uh, on behalf of Misha and the Hoover Institution, uh, goodbye. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.